A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast exists because of the paid members at DecodingTV.com. Become a paid member, help to support the podcast, get ad-free episodes, and early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at DecodingTV.com who makes this podcast possible. I think the world is getting old, and in us is where the fabric of all things is coming apart at the seams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen, and joining me today, uh, he is the co-host of Remap Radio, as well as the author of Crossplay.News, Patrick Klepek. How's it going today? <laughs> well, I didn't have to go on a Boeing aircraft this weekend, so I'm great, David. <laughs> Indeed. Welcome to Decoding TV. Patrick's referring to the fact that I literally just got back from the Sundance Film Festival less than 24 hours ago. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. I also talked about it on the filmcast today. Uh, but welcome to Decoding TV, a weekly TV podcast where we cover stuff that's going on in the world of television and also stuff that we've been watching. We dive in depth into weekly TV episodes that are airing each week. You can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Today on the podcast, uh, we wanted to do a little follow up on Emmy's ratings. We wanted to talk about review bombing for True Detective Night Country, as well as what's going on with She-Hulk Season 2. And then, in terms of what we've been watching, we're going to cover Echo, Episodes 3 through 5, as well as True Detective Night Country Part 2. So that's what we've got in store for you. Now, Patrick Lepic, after we relaunched Decoding TV as a weekly podcast last week, uh, the reviews have been rapturous. Uh, they're in? They, they're in, and they are positive. <laughs> I've gotten so many positive comments from people saying, oh, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of this thing where, like, when you when you work on yourself and you change your appearance and you go in and people are like, oh, my gosh, David, you look great. And, and the, the immediate question in my mind is, wait, so I didn't look good before? You know, <laughs> what, what was I before? Was I chopped liver before? Uh, we got a lot of people saying... Oh my, this this show, this podcast is awesome now. <laughs> I forgot this podcast existed. <laughs> yeah, this podcast is great. I'm going to listen to it now, unlike before. Uh, and you know what, Patrick Klepek? I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, a listen is a listen. A review is a review. A subscriber is a subscriber. You can yes. clod it however you can. Uh, but yes, a lot, a lot of people reached out via social in real life, in person at Sundance to tell me that they appreciate the new format. Uh, at Decoding TV, our new weekly format where you can listen whether you're watching the TV or not. We did get one big uh, piece of feedback that I really want to take seriously, which is have a little homework section so that people will know what to watch for next week. So I want to try to put that at the top of the show and let people know what we'll be covering next week as well. And I'll also put it in the show notes. Um, so you can you can be on the lookout in the show notes for like what you need to watch for next week. But yeah, next week, we plan to continue covering True Detective uh, Night Country. And we're also going to try to take a look at Masters of the Air, the new show on Apple TV+, Plus, as well as Lulu Wong's new drama, Expats, which will be streaming on Prime Video. So we'll be covering the first episodes of those, or the first two episodes of those two series. A lot to watch. 
very grateful to Patrick Klepek for for trying these uh, new shows out with me. But thanks to everyone who uh, contacted us with positive feedback about the new format at decodingtv at gmail.com and via all of our socials. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll continue doing it this way until we stop doing it this way. And that will be the plan. So. <laughs> what a promise. I know. What a promise to the audience. <laughs> in, the, in the words of uh, Logan Roy, you know, if we're good, we're good. <laughs> uh, and then Tom Wamsgan says, oh, well, I'm very heartened by that. That's, mm, that's heartening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, Patrick Klepek, I just got back from the Sundance Film Festival. Um, have, have you ever been to a, a film festival before, Patrick Klepek? Is this something that no, is in your realm of- I have always wanted to go. It has been my wife and I's great dream to go to Fantastic Fest because mm. it's a mashing up of uh, a film festival with a lot of genre and, and uh, especially horror work um, in a city that, my wife raves about Austin that I'd never been to. Um, but then my kids started going to elementary school and that's right around the time when they start school. And so I don't, I don't know when I'm going to make it, make it there, but I've, I, I feel like Sundance is your version of my E3 or mm-hmm. like a, a, a big sort of festival where like a lot of the people, you know, in the industry go to a lot, of, you get to see a lot of uh, people in the industry, like yeah. the, you know, on the film, on the development side, like the filming side and similar how, when I go to a show and I get to meet a lot of people that make, Games and I, I get the sense that uh, much like when I went to a, uh, an event called Summer Games Fest last June, which is for this quasi version of uh, the video game industry's E3 these days, I hadn't been to an event in since pre-COVID, so it had yeah, been yeah. three and a half years since I had uh, gone to something that concentrated. Was it that long for you? Like since you'd done something kind of on that level? Uh, certainly on that level. Sundance is a real um commitment uh it, it's in park city utah which is a 40 minute drive from the salt lake city utah uh, salt lake city airport and it's in the middle of the mountains and it's often very snowy and cold there and it's punishing physical conditions <laughs> what's really what's the, what's the origin story beyond that like why i believe, I believe it's like robert redford founded it there i don't know exactly why he founded it there but I, you know I, I don't know that when it was created 40 years ago <laughs> Uh, that it was that they anticipated that it would grow into like the premier film festival in the United States, right? You know, like the most prestigious film festival in the United States, and so, uh, but you know, they're still trying to trying to make it work, you know, in the in these uh, environs, and so like every year, some of the biggest names in the world in film trek out to Park City, Utah, uh, and watch a bunch of really amazing movies. Uh, and so, yeah, definitely my first time doing something like that. But it's it's uh, I would say it is a physically grueling experience, Patrick Lepic. Um, yeah, it, I probably spent upwards of 10 hours waiting in line over the course of the last five days. You know, just uh, even if you are you are a member of the press, which I am, you still need to uh, the, the press screenings are first come, first serve. Right. So you have a badge that gets you into the screening, but it's first come, first serve. So if you want a seat, you need to get there like an hour early. And that means standing in line for an hour. And it's not a comfortable line. It's not like we're lining up, you know, lining up outside the side of this big building. You are in this very narrow, you know, like line stanchions, you know, like, and they don't want you saving spaces for anyone. So it's like, it's the, the, the line thingies, the line configurators are basically designed <laughs> so that it can fit one. Per, it's like the width of one human. You know what I'm saying? So, so like mm-hmm. you can't move in and out of the line you can't get any work done really unless it's on your phone. Right. And so what's the bathroom uh, policy? Like, do you like gotta be friends with the person next to you? Like, Hey, 
going I, like I, I guess I, I haven't even encountered so you that never situation. you didn't do this you didn't get I didn't you, do it. you no. just okay all right I, de- <laughs> I, I I strictly kept a strictly dehydrating regimen for myself <laughs> uh, and made sure to drink no water all day um, which is like a really, <laughs> really great a way. really good thing to do while you're sitting and, and watching uh, films all day <laughs> yeah ex- absolutely absolutely it's not bad for the health at all um, and uh, wait I have a question yeah have, okay this is not yeah, a follow up about uh, the films you saw. Yeah. Uh, the quality of them. What we'll be looking forward to the next year. It's about uh, a video you posted to Instagram where a very nice uh, person on the flight uh, was not supposed to give you a, the the bowl and yes. a fork and yes. a knife. And yes. your video ended on a cliffhanger, which was, "What do I do with this?" Before oh, yeah, I go yeah, okay, back, okay. what did okay. you, what did you do with it? Let's let's tell let's tell the story, right? Please. So uh, on the flight, there, so I am. Um, very careful when it comes to COVID, right? So mm-hmm. uh, whenever I am in public in an in, uh, indoor space, I wear a mask. Uh, and that means um, I'm not dining in restaurants yet. Um, and so I don't eat. I don't eat or drink when I'm in a public indoor space. Uh, and so I'm on the plane and they're serving a meal. And I say to the person, the stewardess, hey, can you give me anything that I can bring with me off the plane? Otherwise... Uh, I decline the meal. It's all good. And she says, oh, well, I don't think we can really do that because we serve it to you like in a porcelain bowl. Mm. And I said, okay, then don't worry about it. And then she leans in and she's like, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> she gets this She gets this impish grin on her face. She's like, I'll see what I can do. And I was like, okay. Then later she hands me a paper, a plastic bag. And I take, I'm like, oh, thank you so much. I take it back to my hotel room to discover that it is a full set of whatever the, it's like a porcelain bowl Hell with, yes. uh, with like a chicken salad in it and, uh, and a full set of silverware. And I thought it would be like the plastic stuff at restaurants. Sure. It was a full set of like metallic silverware, like knife, spoon, and fork. And uh, I felt like she got a real rush out of it, you know, like. If you're if you're an airline attendant, it's like this one of the most exciting parts of your day is you get to vi- she's not supposed to do that. She's not supposed to give these things away. Um she's not supposed to violate the rules, but it really probably this is the closest experience she probably had to a bank heist was <laughs> was giving me these this thing. She cause she she seemed genuinely like excited to be giving these items to me. Breaking you know, the like, law, breaking the right, law. Like I feel right. like there's probably um like some threshold that you can hit of like, oh, okay, if one of these bowls goes missing once per quarter, that's sort of what we expect to happen. Someone's going to yeah. steal them or they're going to misplace or they get broken. And she chose to bestow you, yes, David Chen, with that once per whatever moment in which I'm going to be able to get away with this. I know. Someone's right. going to ask me a question about it. And I'm going to say, I don't know. You know, yeah. I don't know what happened to the bowl. Or, oh, some, uh, some hooligan must have made off with them. I, you know, some this hooligan man was but, so hungry, so desperate <laughs> for food. That I, what was I supposed to say? No, not yeah, or, give him or, the chicken salad. You know, or I gave him the chicken salad, and then like next thing I knew, the plate was gone, and I thought he had returned it to someone else. <laughs> he must. That man must have taken it. You know. Uh, so who who knows what story she told to the auditors at the ye old Delta? Uh, but. Uh, but then I was like, yeah, I made this Instagram reel about like, I don't know what to do with this because it's, uh, can you bring a fork on a knife uh, on, a, on a plane? I should say, can you bring a knife onto a plane? I don't think you can bring Seems a knife. Seems unlikely. Even a butter knife. So, uh, and, and a lot of people were suggesting I keep the bowl 
as a memento of uh, yeah. this, the Sundance trip, mm-hmm. right? So here's what I did. <laughs> I cleaned the plate of the bowl, I should say, and put it into my luggage and checked that. Uh, and I threw away, unfortunately, I feel bad about this. I threw away the knife and the fork and kept the spoon. <laughs> okay, I, all right. I, I was I not, not think, okay. I was I, with you. I'm here. I'm walking. <laughs> like, I get it. Okay. Throwing it out a little aggressive, but like, all right, you know, what do you need the silverware for? You probably got silverware you like at home that feels really, and then, but no, this, the spoon, you kept the spoon. You know, it, it as I'm saying it now, it occurs mm-hmm. to me that I could have probably just checked the luggage with the knife and fork either. Cause basically they, they let you put all kinds of stuff in the check luggage that you can't put into. The, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. 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 You can put liquids in there. You can put yeah. like, uh, so in retrospect, I could have brought the whole thing back, but anyway, <laughs> see, I, okay, hold on. Sorry. I, now it, may, <laughs> it does make more sense now that you're explaining it, that it was because you were worried about whether yeah, I was worried about like, to do it. I chose oh, to you, interpret you walked it into as, this, you walked into this airport with a knife in your suitcase. Like, no, no, how I dare you? To, I chose to interpret this entire exchange that you just had a strong preference for the spoon as an object in the kitchen. <laughs> and that that's why you wanted to, it was like, Oh, no, the spoon. no, no. It's because I wanted, I wanted to preserve as much of the trip as possible. <laughs> and I thought the spoon was the only safe thing I could take with me to the airport. Um, I mean, a spoon is really just a tiny bowl, if you think about it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bowl with a stick attached to it, really. <laughs> well, I, I will mean, tell you. Fine, I, I guess we could quibble. I will tell you, I, I have once tried to take a knife through security before. And I'll tell you what ha- Have you ever done this? I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> Uh, so no, my, my crimes are usually like, like, oh, you like your face cream is too much. Can you throw oh, it out? Uh, and I go, oh, that okay. plus stealing televisions from Costco. Probably. Oh, um, all right. It's a sliding anyway. scale. <laughs> okay. So, uh, that's a, that's a reference to those of us, uh, those of you who listen to our curse series. Uh, <laughs> but oh, geez. Yeah. All, all six of you. Um, so, uh, okay. I, uh, look, I like to protect myself, Patrick Klepek. I like to yeah. have, um, self-defense implements mm. around me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you never know what's going to pop off. And so I, uh, I often have a knife on my keychain, right? Oh. Um, and, uh, I still do I, to this mo- at this moment right now, as we're talking, I have a knife on my keychain. It's actually very handy. Like when you get a, a package in the mail or something like that, um, just use the knife, cut it up, you know, like it's very, very, it's very helpful. Uh, if someone's trying to mug you, take out the knife, you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, scare yeah. them off. Call them right? with it door A, door B. I mean, like, <laughs> anything can happen. Two, two extremely equivalent situations. <laughs> open a package, threaten a mugger with it. You well, know, like it's all the same thing. You might open, you know, like the package in their throat with the, I mean, anyway, continue. Oh, wow. Okay. So anyway, one day I went to the airport, this is years ago, and I tried to go through security with the knife. Uh, and fortunately, to the great credit of the TSA, uh, they, they're like, they're, <laughs> they're like, wait, something, you know, I don't remember if I put it in the key box or, or if it was in the bag or something, but they're like, somebody looked at it. They're like, something's wrong with this. And they sort of like ran it through again. And then they had to search my bag and then they found the knife. <laughs> and, uh, what happens in that situation is they say to you, you cannot bring that on the plane. Right. And they give you the option to mail it to yourself. That's what happened. So they they like take you to this. They give you like an envelope, and they take you to this place where you can like <laughs> what? There's put, a post office in the in the airport. I, it wasn't a post office. It was like a. It was like literally like a drop off where like you could put an object in an envelope and like affix stamps or something to it, and then drop it into like a bin, and then like it would 
it would wow. get mailed to you. Yeah. So that's the more you know. Fascinating. So, but, so I, I don't know if that's you know that was many years ago. So I don't know if that's the system today. But Patrick Klepek, all I knew was I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to get have that happen to me again. You know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to mail myself this butter knife from Delta. Oh, I don't you know. know. Actually, that is. The, I got to be honest. <laughs> like of the the conclusions to the story, the one where you choose to affix stamps to an envelope to mail yourself back these Delta <laughs> fork and knives. Uh-huh. I would. I would. I, okay, because. I, what I would have thought of that scenario is, of course I'm going to mail these. Because what I want to happen is to tell my wife, can you go get the mail? And it's like, oh, you can open that for me. And then inside <laughs> are just the most generic fork and knife mm-hmm. from there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, uh, you're probably wondering, hey, David, do you have anything to say about the movies at Sundance? Um, I w- First of all, subscribe to DecodingEverything.com, my newsletter. I wrote about basically everything I saw. Uh, I will just say one thing on this podcast, which I also said on the filmcast. I think the biggest deal coming out of Sundance is going to be this movie called It's What's Inside. Oh, this is the Netflix one, right? That's no longer yeah, going to be in theaters, yeah, yeah. and everyone's mad that it's not going to be in theaters because it's a real audience movie, if nothing else, right? Wow, you know so much about it. I was one of the first. So I, I, there's, I was at the world premiere of this movie, uh, and I was one of the last people to get into the world premiere. Like... I I got to the line, like the waitlist line, like with 15 minutes left before the movie begins. You're supposed to get there like 30 minutes before or an hour before. I got there 15 minutes before for an, but I thought it's an 11 p.m. screening, uh, which is kind of funny, Patrick Klepek, by the way. Uh, my, my friend and colleague Eric B. Sider messaged like how this is Sundance 40th anniversary, and the biggest sign that it's 40 is that all the midnight screenings now happen at 10 and 11 p.m. They have a, they have a section called midnight. But, like, they're not screening at midnight. They're screening at, like, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. You get out after midnight. (laughs) Yeah, you get out after midnight because we're all freaking old now, okay? We can't deal with it. Um, Dude, I remember going to midnight screenings when I was – the last time I went to Sunnets, which is when I came – when I flew there from Boston. And so I had to deal with the time change as well, right? Like, so it's, like, what, two hours earlier, and then you're watching a movie at midnight, so it's like 2 a.m. Eastern time, and then the movie goes until 2 a.m. Mountain time, so you're up in like 4 a.m. Eastern time. You know, it's just like, whew. Anyway, so I'm so glad that midnight movies are no longer at midnight. Uh, I, I'm one of the last people to get into the theater, so I have a seat literally like in the third row all the way to the right. So like the screen is like a trapezoid. <laughs> my, it's like a rhombus or whatever the heck. Like it's like I can barely like understand what's going on. Uh, and it is one of the most incredible films I've ever, certainly ever seen at Sundance. It is super creative, super inventive. The basic plot is uh, eight people are at a pre-wedding celebration. and uh, a mysterious, a strange, oh, sorry, an estranged friend shows up at the celebration carrying a mysterious suitcase, and that is that is the plot description that was written. And I was like, oh well, that when I read it, I was thinking to myself, well, that sounds super vague and not particularly interesting. And then I watched the movie, and I realized that the reason why that's the case is he did not want to reveal what actually happens in the movie. And after the at the Q and A, um, the director said, "Please do not reveal what the actual premise of the movie is, like what what the suitcase does and all that stuff." Um, I, so I am I am not uh, I do not adhere 
um, to the to the no trailer policy. I like trailers yeah, as an right. art form, even, sure. even though they've yeah. been corrupted by modern mm-hmm. marketing. They're no longer little slices of art. They're just yes. Anyway, uh, absolutely. But is it possible to even craft a trailer for that film? I don't think so, unless it's really, really vague. Like you know, okay. of course it's possible. Like there's many trailers that don't give away critical details. That's that's very possible. The the question is, can you sell a movie like right. that without making it like without that? betraying and, essentially what the director right. asked you to do at the end right, of? Right, right. Uh, and, and and I should point out, like the premise is out there. Like people have written about it on Letterboxd. Like sure, many people have not listened to the director and have have revealed the actual plot details. Um, but I, I had a blast and it was like so special to be there in the theater because you feel like you're watching. This is the director's first movie. Like you're in a moment uh, in history. I mean, I feel yeah, like that's it, part of the appeal of going exactly. to something like Sundance. It's why I liked going to events and games like, yeah, okay. I, I like being in this privileged part of the world where I get to be part of something that no one else is experiencing right. for the first time. And like that is fundamentally cool uh and a, a perk of the job if you uh have the privilege to, to access it and be a part of it Absolutely. So I, to- I totally get how how neat that must be especially when a, the work resonates with you yeah uh the guy the director's name is greg jardin by the way and, and you know movies that the movie it's what's inside reminds me of talk to me is a big with the horror film okay last year. you're talking to me right yes. now yeah uh, nice. david <laughs> bodies 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 okay you know? keep um, going uh, the one I love, that Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss movie. You know, oh, I like, didn't see that one. Um, uh, honestly, stylistically, everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, Ooh. just like in terms Ooh, of the editing, banger after the banger. Visuals. Yeah, I know. So, these are all the movies that reminds me of. Uh, shortly during the festival, like during the festival, it was announced um, that Netflix had acquired the movie for seventeen million dollars. Now. That is a huge bummer because it's probably not going to get a theatrical release. Yeah. But from the filmmaker's perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense because I don't think this movie would have done that well theatrically. Um, it doesn't have any stars, like no name actors that most people know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's probably going to end up uh, it, it, like Netflix will give it a good release and it will reach millions of people. And that's going to be great. But if you have a chance to go see it in a theater and you might, you know, uh, then you should. Uh, the movie is it's what's inside. That's the one thing I want to mention like that. I saw that was, that was awesome. Uh, it's supposed to play at South by Southwest. I don't know if that's going to change now that Netflix has picked it up. Yeah. I might want to put a, put a uh, a lid (laughs) on it, especially if they're worried about spoiler talk. Are you going to South by Southwest this year, Patrick? No, never been. That's also on my, on my list there. It, it, it's, there's less reason for me to go these days. There used to be a much bigger intersection of video games as South by Southwest. That part seems to have tapered off right. uh, yeah. a bit um in in the last five years or so but um i was another one that my wife through her job went to all the time i would constantly rave about how how much fun half it was just the fact that you get to be in austin but the other fact was that the festival was was pretty fun yeah yeah so anyway some of my sundance adventures for you and again you can read more about it at decodingeverything.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, let's move on, Patrick Klepek. Let's talk about what's actually going on in the world of television. A quick follow-up to our last week's conversation. Uh, we talked about the Emmys. And uh, I, I don't remember who said it. Maybe it was you, maybe it was Miles, but you guessed that it was going to be one of the lowest-rated Emmys ever. And <laughs> that might have fact, just been the vibe of our conversation yeah. as opposed to anyone saying it was, anything. It was, it was very funereal. It was a very funereal conversation mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, but yes, uh, the Emmys had 4.3 million viewers last week. First of all, I just want to say I have lived like what seems like a lifetime since we recorded that episode. I think we recorded that episode like, I don't know, eight days ago. And uh-huh. I feel like, I feel like it's been like six weeks ago, you know, like, uh, just because I've seen 13 movies between now and then. So I feel, I feel like I've had a whole other existence since then. Um, anyway, we learned that 4.3 million viewers watched the Emmys. Uh, that is, uh, I think the lowest rated, uh, Emmys ever. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there, there are a lot of contributors to that, you know, Patrick Klepek, uh, there's the fact that, uh, there was a playoff game going on at the same time, you know, I, I was, I was, as we were chatting about what was happening, I was literally flipping between like the Emmys and and that football game because football is a particular passion of mine yeah and so I I I feel like that is a I think that was just kicking you know kicking it while it's down I think you know absent that playoff game do I think the numbers are (laughs) everyone sits around and goes you know what I was missing tonight the Emmys (laughs) but I I think it it certainly hurt it uh uh in the in the context of where it was uh where it is in history there were also Iowa caucus results uh, going on at, that night as well, and so people might have been watching that. So there's a lot of competition on the Monday night, you know. So uh, yeah, and uh, but yeah, this this Emmys telecast had a lot going against it. Um, the fact that it was up against these things, the fact that it was for work that occurred one to two years ago, that's largely irrelevant today, you know, like mm-hmm. um, just a brutal run. I read a newsletter called "The Wake Up" uh, by the Ankler and. Uh, I like what he had to say about it. He says, uh, it seems like most of America was with me and the NFL on ABC ESPN as only 4.3 million people watch the Emmys on Fox, a new all-time low down from 5.9 million in September of 2022. Well, at least there's not another Emmy ceremony coming up in eight months, right? Okay, well, at least it won't be up against an NFL game and a caucus night. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, there. there's another festival, like... Can you imagine the next Emmy in eight months, Patrick? That's weird. That's just weird. Like, yeah, that that, that certainly doesn't help matters. Uh, I, I mean, I think I the way I think about it is I sort of end in the same way that we ended our previous conversation was that the best thing these award shows could probably do is just to get away from having to report their numbers or just the numbers are, right. don't become a talking point, right? And so moving towards that that re- sort of requires getting off one of these anchored networks because that's going to be important to them. It's going to, uh, you know, they it was probably used as a form of driving ad revenue, but whether it's being on a subscription service or abandoning the, I mean, I don't know how you, how you do that, but it's just clearly the viewership 
is not the future. Like the, the viewing audience is not the future of the show, but it will continue to exist as a fundamental important cog in the machine of Hollywood. Somehow they have to escape this trap of these embarrassing numbers because I don't think there's any way that you escape this road of the show. It's only going to become more niche with time, even though I think people who make the work are still going to want to show up. I mean, I think there is a absent the audience lack of interest. There is a, I don't know when you, when you work in creative work, it is, it is nice to be recognized for it. And so the award shows serve a, not not just yeah. a marketing, an, but a, an industry, a personal, an, an industry, industry function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so as, they'll as, exist as, in some way, but the the numbers are a problem, and and just I, I don't see that reversing anytime soon. Uh, a couple of other thoughts. First of all, I don't know if we talked about this, but there were sometimes there were shots of the audience at the Emmys last week where you could see that there were you know thirty to forty seats empty. Did you notice that? Yeah, that was very odd. And it's like they they generally have seat fillers for those kinds of things, and I guess. They, the the seat fillers, you know, didn't get rehired after the strikes. I guess I don't know what happened. Like, <laughs> or at it, least the, the the they, you know, sometimes they'll pick their shots. So it's like, hey, this is a particularly empty area of what's happening. Don't cut to that. Yeah, don't cut like, to it. But they cut to it repeatedly. Or the, uh, or the that suggests that there was nothing else to cut to. Right. Like right, that, right, either yeah. scenario, it's like bad production. Well, that would be a bad <laughs> yeah, version yeah. of it. Like <laughs> there's not enough seat fillers, and and it's so empty that there's nothing else to cut to. Right. All point to uh, you know uh, not necessarily what you what you want to see. The other thing I guess I wanted to mention is. I just am really down on the whole award show format in general. Like, I feel yeah. like the award show, award show is in desperate need of reinvention. I know you took a huge steaming dump all over the Game Awards last week <laughs> on the podcast, but I, I honestly think if we had something like the Game Awards uh, for movies that would actually, or TV, that would actually be a step in the right direction. Didn't, um, didn't that it's on some level used to be what, now granted, this is during an era in which the main awards are still, like a lot of the core awards are, are extremely popular still, but something like the MTV, like movie right, awards right. functioned something, as a yes, yeah. an extension but, of the popular, look, where it's like, look, we know the Oscars aren't going to do the pop culture stuff. And there are really outdated parts of that, like best kiss, which was just a way to get like girls to kiss. I mean, extremely gross parts of that, but like at its core was that it was a populist yes. Yes. extension of pop culture that just embraced the fandom and the over-the-topness and there is probably room for something like that that exists as a compliment rather than i sort of reject the idea that the oscars needs to become that in so much as there's probably room for a a complimentary show that sure. that was an extension uh, that, of that that's fair but i think like what the game awards gets right patrick is it's hyping up the game industry right it's hyping up what is to come. Like, hey, look at all this cool stuff that's coming out in the future. And like, Oscars and Emmys don't do that very well. Yeah. You know, like there's so few trailers. It's it's really doesn't feel like oh we're in this really cool, growing, exciting industry. Like that's what the Game Awards does feel like at its best. And Oscars and Emmys don't generally feel that way. Um, so I'm just really down on the format, and I feel like it's um. It's a train that's slowly heading off a cliff and there's nothing that could be done to stop it. The other thing I wanted to add as kind of a supplement to our last week conversation is honestly, it really feels like the Emmys could, or, you know, I don't know if the Emmy specifically, but like that, that, that there, there people were craving some kind of podcast esque format for some of these reunions that happened at the Emmys, right? Like you're bringing together like the cast reunions. Okay, it's fun mm-hmm. to see all the people get together. 
But what I really want to see is those people have a conversation, you yeah. know, and talk about the show. It doesn't need to be elaborate. doesn't need to be like two hours, but like three to four minutes of candid conversation. Like the Martin reunion was the closest thing that, that happened to that. Um, but it's just, it's just, I don't know that it's super exciting to watch Lorraine Bracco and Michael Imperioli get on stage and then say three lines about right. the Sopranos. And then that's it. It's like, Hey, I want to hear what these people have to say. And that is not facilitated by the format of the Emmys. You know, it's because you got to get onto the, we don't have time to spend five minutes talking about Martin. We got to go on to the next thing. And I just like, Oh, that's a real loss because it's, I'm sure it's so much effort to bring these people together and get the costumes and the, or the, uh, the sets and everything like that. And it's like, if you have them, why not make some interesting, <laughs> why not make some interesting content? You know? Uh, so even anyway, if it existed on the sideline, right? Like part of what um, is absent from these award shows is uh, not realizing what late night shows already do, which is that you may be producing in the, in the, you know, at least in the late shows, an hour, for, uh, an hour broadcast. But really what you're doing is producing a bunch of segments that you're, cho- that you're trying to get to go viral and be shared online mm-hmm. and the broadcast yeah. I mean, the numbers matter, but fundamentally, like you're you're creating product that is going to live on beyond that that nightly airing. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is a fundamental if, if, misunderstanding. If that's the goal. It's not go, do it going. Well, that's what I mean. Opinion. That like, yeah. these shows are not contextualizing themselves <laughs> right. in that format. We're like, there's a yes. world where yes. the stu- the stuffiness could exist more in the broadcast, where the more formalist version yes. exists in the broadcast. Yes. But then have like built-in extensions that are going to live. Yeah, that. yeah, and that's and that's what they don't. They were sort of rely on. Well, I hope somebody cries on, uh, you know, like when they when they right. do an award because certainly most of the time the writing for the jokes and stuff are we're a long ways away from the you know the era of like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler being able to carry one of these things across the finish line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, if there was like an Emmys podcast where all these people hung out, I mean, maybe that exists, but I don't know about it. You know, where all like they did record things, but I don't think so. Anyway, you're right. It's it's a it's a situation where the media needs of today conflict with the format of the past, and that's what we ended up getting. So anyway, just a few other thoughts on the Emmys, which no, literally very few people care about, as evidenced by the <laughs> ratings of the Emmys, but wanted to cap off that conversation. So, yeah. All right. Let's talk about what's going on with She-Hulk Season 2. Patrick Klepek, I don't know what you thought about She-Hulk Season 1. I thought it was perfectly fine and also occasionally very bad. Uh, but, you know, overall, like a pleasant experience, like uh, unobjectionable. I will say that I did feel when I was watching it, boy, this feels like the juice was not worth the squeeze in terms of how much work seemed to be put into the show versus the results. And I think Tatiana Maslany might agree with me on that. What, what, what is this news that we heard about She-Hulk season two? Yeah, uh, Tatiana Maslany was on a uh, recent uh, Twitch game show, which that statement itself is like <laughs> <laughs> just an extremely funny, that makes a lot of sense, but it's just, that's the world we live in now, as we are getting uh, news about future Marvel production, or potential news <laughs> about future Marvel productions from uh, appearances on a Twitch game show. But you yeah, know, she, I just want to say, Tatiana Maslany, if you're listening to this, you know, you are always welcome to guest on Decoding TV. We'd love to have you. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway we do not look down on Twitch game shows, but it, it is just, hey, this is a new world now where 
uh, Twitch game shows can arguably quasi break news. So, and I, I look a huge extension of what I do for a living is people watching me on Twitch. So, at no, at no point am yeah. I denigrating anyone in the, yeah. that watches or or does anything on the service. But she was on there and was asked about the second season, and uh, you know, mentioned that uh, you know, I don't think we're coming back. I think we blew our budget, and Disney was like, "No thanks." Which obviously, if you've watched anything that she does, she is consistently and constantly tongue in cheek and also has a history of um i mean like lying's a way of looking at it but definitely is like willing to throw trolley bait into the culture because really? she knows it's gonna is gonna uh make people upset oh yeah there were she had multiple times had like was uh th- like throwing things about she hulk ahead of its premiere out there just to, to sort of mess with people so there's a way of looking at this that a week from now, we could get a like a series order for She-Hulk season two, and this was her just messing everyone ahead of that. But like as you and I know from a lot of the reporting around uh, the Disney Plus shows, Marvel in general, their production philosophy, their approach to sort of rejecting traditional uh, TV, sort of like coming up with like uh, show bibles, having showrunners, like writing all the episodes in advance, following sort of that traditional structure that has served TV well for for many decades. Marvel has rejected that. And it's it's led to exceedingly bloated budgets with, uh, you know, episodes of uh, She-Hulk costing regularly uh, on or around $25 million, which is a lot more than, you know, a Game of Thrones or The Mandalorian shows that I think most people would, would uh, rightly look at as being uh, having a larger scale or ambition in terms of like battles was depicted on screen. Um, well, uh, not, even, to- not even that, Patrick Lepic, like literally culture defining shows absolutely like right like that 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 have de- like of course made, they cost a lot made an impact on culture and how art is made and uh and what types of shows are made and that people know all the references from uh or many of the references she hulk consisted of nine episodes in its first season and apparently cost 225 million dollars total uh, which, yeah, as you said, is probably about how much they would spend on an episode of... Actually, more than they would spend on an episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, also, Game of Thrones has more episodes per season, mm-hmm. and the episodes are longer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, are, Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, so the question and, comes up, like, where did that budget go? And my sense is it went into rounds of review of them not knowing what kind of show they wanted to make. And so they'd have to go back to the drawing board and redo a bunch of visual effects. Uh, the, the, this is like report, you know, public reported stuff of how that show was made. And I think the results show like it doesn't, it, it's not a cohesive show that really feels like it has a uh, true vision. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I, I will push back a little bit. Like she actually is one of my, uh, uh, one of the Disney plus MCU shows that I like uh, more than most is definitely, I don't think it's as good as a uh, WandaVision uh, um, or, or Loki season one, but I think I, I find her so effortlessly charming and I still, at the end of the day, love the core conceit and think there's something like in the course of those nine episodes, which I don't think are incredibly strong, but like I had a good time watching it. I enjoyed it. I was like, oh, by the end of this, I do feel like they're onto something here that if this was given a chance to breathe in the way that like any other comedy show, like go watch the first seasons of most comedies. It takes a long time to figure out right, what's funny, right. what works about the character dynamics. That is at odds with an extremely expensive show yeah. full of visual effects that has to have a lot of pre or post production done. And so maybe She Hulk as a television show 
just does not work with the budget. Even if you were to get a more constrained budget, it wouldn't work. But I, I did think that show was onto something and could have been much more interesting in a like streamlined focus season two, where they had a better understanding of what worked and what didn't work. But uh, I, even if uh, she's out here throwing, you know, uh, bait to the trolls, I, I think there's every reason to expect that we probably wouldn't get a second season of that, especially after all the comments we've gotten from Bob Iger and all the, and all the sort of signals we've gotten from Disney and Marvel in general about, Hey, like we're going to be sort of like doing some cost cutting. We're going to be a little more focused. We're going to be thinking through a little bit more of how we're doing these things. She-Hulk seems like it comes at this point from a different era of just, you can write whatever check you want. And of course it's going to be a hit. And of course it's going to be the biggest thing. And again, like I said, I think She-Hulk was better than uh, many of the shows that showed up uh, from Marvel on Disney plus, but maybe not so much that it would necessarily uh, necessitate, you know, another couple hundred million dollars on the second season. Fair enough, Patrick Klepek. You know, the one thing I will say I remember from that show is there is a, uh, there is a famous tweet that I really like by Matthew Castle, who wrote, this was in December of 2021. So uh, more than two years ago, he wrote, my favorite bit of Marvel films is where you sit through nine minutes of credits to watch a five second clip of some guy stepping through a doorway and saying, it's me, Blorco. And (laughs) And that is literally what happens at the end of She-Hulk episode nine is uh hulk's son shows up it's 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 hulk's son scar uh by the way a fact that has never been followed up on any subsequent marvel show or tv uh, or a film nope so uh uh, i i think you're right that many marvel shows including the one we're going to discuss today have suffered from competing priorities and it feels like it suffers from competing priorities that many marvel shows feels like oh there is a good show in here that if they just leaned into the strengths and away from the stuff that makes it too marvel it could actually be really nice and pleasant. And it's, it's honestly really a shame that um, that She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, couldn't be there. You, you can imagine a world where they decided to put Tatiana Mislani on stilts and put her in a Hulk suit, like Lou Ferrigno <laughs> style. And then the, the, the show would have cost... $20 million less per episode. And then maybe we would have a season two that would be, you know, that would have time to find its own voice in a way that season one, I don't think did. So, um, yeah, uh, it's a shame, but it does seem as though She-Hulk season two is probably not going to happen. Uh, and, and, and I share your sadness that this is a show I think like had some good elements, but wasn't allowed to really lean into what made it work the best, uh, which, which were the, kind of workplace fun thing like ha- having a kind of um procedural i think would have been really good for the marvel universe right a procedural uh, is something that was explicitly right comedic um, yeah, like it's, the Mar- it's a case of the week with with she-hulk you know that would have been exactly. a cool thing you know exactly exactly and like marvel stuff is frequently tongue-in-cheek and is is taking a long time to find any way to distance itself from being so defined by Joss Whedon's writing style. And I guess that's part of what I found refreshing about She-Hulk was that it was explicitly an upfront comedic um, and trying to find a way to do comedy in a way that didn't feel so Whedon-esque in a way that has defined so much of Marvel ever since Whedon stepped in uh, during the Avengers. All right. Well, that is a brief update about She-Hulk. Let's talk about one other news story. This is a weird one, Patrick Lepic. Yeah. Uh, the, the headline is 
True Detective showrunner asks for Rotten Tomatoes votes, citing review bombing. I'm reading here from an uh, article at Forbes.com by Paul Tassi. Uh, True Detective Night Country has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but this led to a rather bizarre situation where showrunner, director, and main writer of season four, Issa Lopez, complained about lower audience score votes, citing a specific group review bombing the series. She said on on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, quote, so if you liked last night's episode of True Detective Night Country and have a Rotten Tomatoes account, maybe head over there and leave an audience review, question mark. The bros and hardcore fanboys of season one have made it a mission to drag the rating down, and it's kind of sad considering all the five-star ones, end quote. That message was later deleted. Now, I know what you're probably asking. Like, what, what is exactly the, uh, the score of True Detective Night Country on... Uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And yeah, it, it is doing very well. It has 78% uh, critic score, 57% uh, t- uh, like audience tomato meter score. The thing that's odd about the story is at the time that it happened, uh, the audience score was around 69%. Uh, and then after that tweet, after the tweet, it went up to like 74%. Now it's back down to like 57%. Um, but the thing is, 69, 74%. Even 57% is not that low. You know, it's not like 57% is not great, but it's not like that low. Um, and so, yeah, what did you make of this story, Patrick Lebeck? Uh Well, if you follow <laughs> uh, Issa Lopez uh, on, on, on X uh, on Twitter, uh, she is um, <laughs> calling her chronically online would not be a misrepresentation of she's online a lot. Pay, like is it pays close attention to social media is very chatty and accessible uh, it's one of like the things that i i've really enjoyed uh over the the course of uh since kind of like she kind of came on on my radar um was following her mm-hmm. uh, uh some years back and and watching as she's built up to this project uh but i think stuff like that can also trap you in uh being <laughs> to, to to online to a degree and i think this mm-hmm. project clearly means a lot to her and Mm -hmm. it's true that probably this show uh like you know the fact that uh it is you know fording you know sort of you know like in you know indigenous characters um queer characters like that is the kinds of things that like maybe could make it a target of ire um i don't have the evidence to say like that was necessarily what was happening here i didn't know that there was necessarily like a a group of true detection True Detective season one truthers that have like just been sitting around waiting to get mad at a new season. There are two other seasons they could get mad at as well if they had watched what it would have come before. Um, but it's it, what's interesting. I you know it, it would have been very easy actually for this story to get swapped out to her kind of stepping in it again. I don't know if you saw that. And maybe we get into this when we get into the to the episode. But like the most recent episode has an AI generated poster in the background um that she attempted to explain very clumsily uh i i would argue in terms of arguing was part of the character and the character is the one that actually wanted to make ai art that they hung in the i guess part of what i take away here is i think maybe like the show seems very well reviewed people are liking it like maybe enjoy that part of it and i think sometimes creatives can get uh, understandably excited as as because Twitter and places like that allow you to connect so easily with audiences. But there's a fine line between connecting with that audience and then allowing yourself to get sort of overwhelmed and swamped by 
being that close to the people who are engaging with what you've made. I completely agree. Uh, by the way, I apologize. My numbers were wrong. The numbers I was quoting earlier were for True Detective, the whole show, which I guess is an aggregate number. The Night Country numbers are much better. Night Country has a 93% average Rotten Tomato score and 67% audience score. So that is a very, 67% is Seems pretty incredibly good. respectable audience yeah. score. Like that is a very solid audience score. Um, but I think you're right, Patrick Lepic, that there's a situation where uh, – I, I I don't know about you. You know, I thought we could talk about this a little bit, Patrick, because you and I both put work out into the world that is reviewed sometimes. And uh, I, I have stopped looking at podcast reviews. I, I, I have, it has been years since I have looked at a podcast review uh, because it, stre- it stresses me out too much. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing to be, there's no way in which my life is really improved by it. And so I've stopped doing it. Um, but I can remember there was a time in my life where it, it was a very dark time where I would get a ton of like negative podcast reviews on one of the shows that I was doing and I would take it very personally and I, I it would, I would just get very upset and exorcised. And that's for a podcast that took me, you know, four or five hours to make, right. Including mm-hmm. recording and preparing and so on. I can't imagine working for, I got to assume what minimum nine months on this thing. I think they were um, said they were, well, they, I think they were shooting for, closer to 10 so you imagine that combined with plus writing uh, it and thinking yeah. about it so it's been years. years of your life yeah Can you imagine years of your life going into a project and then you see some uh people complaining about the show for for not even good reasons for like hey, this show is too woke you know or whatever yes crap they're putting out there you can imagine how infuriating that would be and you'd want to like blow off some steam by posting about it online I, it's I completely... so easy it's so easy to do that right yeah, like yeah. that is the, the it's 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 the the blessing and the curse is that ability to just take something out and type yeah. it into the space but then you know like it, it can also you you can you can end up indulging in your in your worst impulses as a result yeah so i completely understand where it comes from and i, I have a lot of sympathy and and people shouldn't be able to Come, <laughs> I say that as somebody who runs a podcast course, but you know, like I think um, it seems like the thing that's bo- bothering Issa Lopez is people not even engaging with the work, which I think right. would be really infuriating. It's not, hey, I watched the show and I found it to be lacking thematically or whatever. It's, uh, it's just that they're they just don't think it sh- the show should be allowed to exist. That's that's the part that's really galling i have to say is is not when people say hey um people can disagree with me david chen all the time like hey i I actually didn't think um warhorse was very good or something like that you know like (laughs) that's completely fine like i I have no issue with that in fact it's very it's very engaging and it's one of the reasons i made the podcast was to like debate and discuss these kinds of things the things that kind of bother me more are when people say like oh uh david chen should just shut the fuck up like he he just he he should not be allowed to talk publicly. Like, and that's the stuff that, and I think that's the stuff she's reacting to. It's not, hey, uh, the show is too slowly paced. You know, it's not that stuff. It's it's people saying, you know, how dare you put some, you know, how, how dare you inject the woke mind virus into my true detective <laughs> show? You know, with um, with uh, where I'm used to seeing like stripper asses in the uh, opening <laughs> credits and stuff, right? It's like that's the kind of stuff that I think would really. Yeah. Chafe, and and I understand that, um, but this is why I no longer post on X, formerly known as Twitter. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I also think it's healthy. Um, 
I mean, it's a fine line with this as a as a creative, and I think this is you know true for for folks like her and even folks like us is that when you put it out into the world, it's also healthy to just let people discuss it and just let that let that happen independently of you participating in that. And participation mm-hmm. can even mean seeing it happen. And 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 <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. Participation means even seeing what ha- like you you just think creative should unplug. Is that kind of what you're well, suggesting? Well, no. Right? But like, for example, um, uh, in a lot of the work I do, you know, but, but a lot of stuff you and I do are like very personality based. And as a result of that, sometimes people are commenting not just on our opinions, but how you say it. And I right. I have those thoughts about other people, and I sometimes but like. So sometimes there are spaces where I stay out of that I know are like part of the communities that are commenting on the work I do. And they don't need, I don't need to go in there and feel bad if they say something I disagree with. And they should also be free to have open conversations about the work that is free from thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't say this because Patrick might be over my shoulder. And I I would feel bad if I like said this. So I think there's like a, you want you want that you create, it's understandable to crave the validation because why else do you make it? Like, it's untrue that you make it just because you make it for yourself. Like that is just, that is not enough. Um, you know, that goes back to award, award show conversations, right? Like it is almost most people, myself included want to know that other people are getting something from the time they're spending on a thing, but then you've just got to find ways to walk up to that line sometimes and, and walk back. And that's, but that's hard, especially when, like you said, you've spent years on something. I can't, I've, it's why I've always said, I cannot fathom getting into making video games because mm-hmm. I get to see something or play something, judge it, process it, and then move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. It is kind of incomprehensible for me to imagine the personal weight that goes into building something, whether it's a movie or a television show or a video game, putting it out there and then dealing with how people process that. It just yeah. seems terrifying. So I just choose not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough um and on, honestly patrick it, it uh kind of brings up the whole sundance situation too i really feel like i'm just you know a, a, a wise man once told me it's much better to say something an hour into a podcast than to write it in a tweet you know because uh-huh. you'll get much fewer complaints about it mm-hmm. but i'm just gonna put this out there I think there is some great inflation that goes on at Sundance sometimes, you know, like mm. I feel like the energy, the excitement that's in the room when you're like watching it with someone, uh, with the people who made it, it, it makes people feel more positively. And then this happens so often where coming out of the festival, people are like, Oh, that movie's amazing. And then like it was released to the public and people are like that her, you know, that one. <laughs> um, I feel like that's normal. I, I, I think that that's almost, um, that's what part of the appeal, like that irrational, side right. of you I, I, I think yeah sorry go ahead Patrick go ahead well I, I think to be around like to share in the joy with someone after they made a thing like is going to color your perception of the thing I think I think that is a very uh normal thing to, I think part of what you're you're pointing out is then hopefully for critics people that maybe can maybe separate themselves from some of that momentum is to point out maybe a little more of the reality of the situation of the work separated from being happy that someone made something and had the bravery to present it to an audience. Yeah. I also think there's something specific about movies, right? That uh, unlike a video game, you can consume the entire thing in less than 90 minutes, right? So 
there's something specific to it, movies and not even TV shows, right? Where you can like, uh, you can consume the entire thing. And uh, there are some really great letterbox reviews for one of the movies I saw called A Different Man. Uh, and I, I went to the world premiere of this movie called A Different Man, which stars uh, Sebastian Stan. And, uh, you know, somebody wrote on Letterbox something along the lines of, you know, uh, I, 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 I watched this movie with the entire cast and crew sitting directly behind me, and I'm still processing that experience. Somebody else wrote, quote, uh, Lee Carr, 27, wrote, quote, I was shit-talking this movie during the credits, and I didn't realize the writer-director was sitting right in front of me. Oh. <laughs> Fuck. Um, but I think I think you're right. Like the the direct, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You know, you can't study a thing without changing it. Like the director's presence does change it, and um, maybe sometimes uh, somebody needs to take a step back. I wouldn't necessarily say that's true of Issa Lopez. This is a very minor, like, oh yeah, thing in the scheme. You know, it's not like she's um, publicly melting down or anything like that. But I think it no. just hints at it. Just it does hint at this uh, occasionally tense relationship that creators can have with the people that consume the shows. So, uh, but also, yes, there are in fact, terrible, uh, people out there who review bomb shows because they don't have the, the, uh, the type of characters that they like to see on screen. And, um, those people should be given a hard time. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do not blame Issa Lopez at all for, uh, no. for saying what she said and it's very reasonable, but it's also, uh, I, I feel for her. I feel for her. It's a challenging situation for her to be in. So anyway, uh, those are a few of the uh, TV news items that have been going on this last week. It's time to get to the part of the show where we talk about some of the episodes of television we've been watching. So today we're going to talk about Echo episodes three through five and True Detective Night Country part two. Let's start by talking about Echo. I have a proposition. You want an empire. You'll have it. Let's talk about Echo, Season 1, Episodes 3 through 5. Uh, the episode titles are Tuklo, Taloa, and Maya. In these episodes, reading from the plot description, uh, Maya learns the meaning of collateral damage as Fisk's ruthless army arrives in Tamaha, Oklahoma. She finds herself at a crossroads, facing the shadows of her past and contemplating her future. And in episode five, the finale, the lives of Maya's family hang in the balance as Fisk's army invades the Choctaw Nation powwow. Let's talk about overall thoughts and then talk about a few more spoilery thoughts. But Patrick Klepek, at the end of the day, do you think people should watch Echo? Oh, man, you know, we just finished talking about uh, She-Hulk being a show, you know, that, yeah. uh, huh, there's something interesting here. Uh but I don't think the show ever managed to fully capture yeah. what, it, what it could have been. I have, I have a note here from episode four where I said, I uh, wrote to myself, how is this show almost over already? <laughs> um, it, it doesn't have a particularly coherent arc. I don't think it's a particularly satisfying arc. I don't have any sense of the production uh, how many episodes were there meant to be? I, I can't get into that, but it feels like a meddled with work, um, especially as we head towards the finale. There are so many individual elements, uh, big ideas, small touches 
that I think are incredibly cool. I love the character. I love the little community. I love a lot of the side characters who are given absolutely no room to breathe. I don't understand why uh, Echo's best friend, who is built up by the show to play a very important role, and then there's no role to play for her by the end because it feels almost desperately obvious that that was a subplot furiously edited out to try and make all this work. I think Kingpin is probably a top three villain, top two villain across the entire MCU. If we're now folding in the Netflix shows, I think, and he is almost in completely wasted here to, to really do nothing other than set up what might be happening in a future daredevil season. Um, it's, it's one of those that I, on the one hand, there's so, there are so many things about it that I like enough that I, because it's such a short running time and even the episodes themselves aren't that long. Yeah. I yeah. don't feel like it's a profound, like it's not right. a waste of time. It is, right. it is absolutely yeah. not. And also it doesn't waste your time in the sense that even the finale, I think is 34 minutes long. Right. Like it is not luxuriating and sticking around for eight to 10 episodes, 45, 55 minutes long. Like I think all told this show is, four hours maybe at, at most and uh weirdly i wish it was longer i wish it could actually sit in this world and these characters more um because i can't quite tell with some of the things i have a problem w- uh, with uh like the the absence of you know an expansion on on her best friend or what's up with these powers uh is that stuff just on the cutting room floor this the show seems too smart in other ways to have not thought through these other things. And it just feels like I'm, I've been handed a rough draft of a show or something that's just been chopped, chopped to pieces. And it makes me a little sad. Like there are a few of these shows that I've, like, I haven't, you know, when we reviewed secret invasion, I mean, it was, that was a giant waste of time, right? but right. I don't know that I was sad at the end of it is like, mm-hmm. well, they could, you know, this wasn't a great use of Samuel Jackson and hundreds of millions of dollars, but like this one, especially with this character, uh, what it represents to like be on screen this way. It was like, man, this show should have been a home fucking run. And I don't know, it stops a little after first base and you're left going, it's a lot of interesting ideas. I didn't hate the time I spent it with it, but boy, I wish it, it, it could have been a more confident show and a, and a, and a tighter one. You know, it's rare when this happens, but I think I 100% agree with everything you just said. <laughs> I think the the thing is, I actually think you're underselling how good some aspects of a show are. There's some stuff in this show that's incredible, like just unbelievably good. And then there's stuff that I would say is mild to moderate bad. Yeah. And they're about equal parts each, I would say. Um, and so... And you're right. The fact that it's only, what, less than three hours long for the whole thing makes it very easy to forgive the problems. Because at the end of the day, hey, you watch the two and a half, two and a half hour, three hour thing, and there were some good elements to it and some bad ones. Like, hey, that's not bad. I would say in terms of Marvel shows, definitely middle of the pack. Like, yeah, nothing. It's not egregiously terrible, like Secret Invasion, nor is it as good as, you know, Loki or anything like that. Like, it's it's perfectly okay. Um, but it is sad because the stuff that is good is so good. And uh, and I do think it's worth praising. So let's talk about some of those things. Um, so let's get into like a few of the spoilery things that I, I do want to mention. You know, one of them is uh, no, I am not a, a member of the deaf community. You know, I don't uh, 
use American Sign Language. So like, I um, I can't say how good representation this was, but from an outsider's perspective, it seemed to be really strong. And what I mean by that is, uh, there were v- like there were vast portions of the show that took place just with characters communicating in American Sign Language with subtitles and nothing else like no nothing to spice it up or nothing like they could have easily figured out a way around that they could have um had like a translator that like spoke the words all the time uh, but they didn't they they committed to that path uh and when there was a character that wanted to find a way around it aka kingpin who gave echo this contact lens that would allow him to sign his words via uh, a digital representation there is actually a character uh implication for that which is like he didn't bother to learn it himself and like that's a, a mark against him and i thought oh wow that's actually impressive like it's just impressive the way i think they implemented it couple that with the fact that um it really does feel like a love letter to uh choctaw nation and it feels like they they took a lot of time to like show the various elements of um, these people and their history. I loved how every episode began with this flashback. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, every flashback is different visually and, you know, as- aesthetically and uh, in terms of what's actually going on narratively in each of the flashbacks and and serves a different plot function. That's like incredible stuff that like Marvel just doesn't generally do. And so I'm, it earns a lot of credit for literally all that stuff I just said. And then the main through line plot of the show just sucks so much ass. It's just like, I don't care about Kingpin. I don't care about like, like it's so hard to like, like 90% of the stuff they're referring to is stuff that not even, that even didn't happen on screen in this show. It didn't happen in any show, right? It wasn't, um, as far as I understand, it wasn't really like it was in Hawkeye, but it wasn't like. You didn't see all that stuff that happened. In all no, it's it's right? a show that is heavy on implication, and yeah, whether implica- it was stuff that happened in their past that we never saw, and it's therefore very difficult to care about. You know, in my opinion, um, what did you think about the Kingpin plot? Because I thought this was just the, so difficult for me to get emotionally invested in Echo's relationship with Kingpin. You know what I'm saying? Like no, I, I, I just mean, couldn't. I, I, I couldn't. That was a complete waste of time. Um, uh, a a wait and 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 contributes to the show feeling so disjointed because they're ultimately telling two different stories. Uh, yeah. It's a story of Maya coming back to her hometown after experiencing a profound trauma in her youth and feeling like she was not feeling was cut off by people who should have been. I mean, like one of the most powerful sequences in the whole show is when she confronts her grandmother about how she was like, and like, you know, we, we talked about this in Secret Invasion where it's like occasionally you get a glimpse into a different show that like how, wow, if this had been the show, there could have been something really strong here. And I would have been fine with a show that was bookended by Kingpin, right? Like it gets us yeah, in, yeah. like, why does she leave New York? Because of this relation with Kingpin. And look, I know we're trying to make this all on its own, but like, we're, we're, we're you know, like it, it's impossible to fully do that at the moment. So Kingpin gets her out back home and then Kingpin is the culmination of an arc that she has here dealing with trauma uh, back in this, in this hometown. But the show just cannot get away from feeling as though, I mean, I'm sure everyone must be wondering where is Kingpin when Kingpin is not on screen. And I just wasn't. And that's not a knock against the actor. It's not against the character. It just didn't feel like it was the sole 
of the show. And I like the like like the friend she first runs into, whose the actual character name escapes me, because how would you remember the names of any of the side characters in this show to begin right. with when yeah. you spend barely any time with them? Like, but he's the kind of funny guy uh that that she, that she runs into. Um uh, that's the kids does the monster truck at the at the end has one of the the highlights of the, of the finale like this guy's cool and interesting and all these characters have fascinating over character overlaps with Maya and her history and I I just think there could have been a totally great and interesting show about her solving some criminal problem in in this town um and then yeah. have Kingpin show up at the end and that's when she has to make this choice and whether to go back to New York and you keep the framing device but it doesn't get so bogged down in in the Kingpin at all and and it, and your point about the interpreter device that Kingpin has that reveals a character flaw I agree if that had only happened for a couple of scenes but instead because they want Kingpin to be in half this show it ends up in many ways feeling like they spent so much time being incredibly creative, thoughtful uh, about like making sure that like signing wasn't just something that Maya was doing. There was a community around it. Mm-hmm. And the show was built around it. But Kingpin, Kingpin, he's got to talk a lot. And like, what are we going to put an interpreter behind him? Like, it just felt like a shorthand that cheapened. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that because I think I think they could have just made if they wanted to go that way they could have just said okay Kingpin knows uh, ASL now you know like they could have just done it and and so I think I think it was very purposeful and I I didn't have a problem with it Um, but you know it's fair hey if you want to hate on Kingpin more as a character in the show I'm I'm happy to join (laughs) you there I think um, I, I have to say the scene when I think it's when Maya's mom is explaining to her. Mm-hmm. via flashback like hey all of your ancestors are with you in that moment it was very beautiful and moving i i, I just so moved by that scene and uh you know explaining the title of the show like you know you're an echo yeah. of our oh. you know of your past and it, i was like oh th- this as i was watching this i was thinking to myself this is incredible and i've never seen anything like marvel do anything like this before We're like i've never seen a scene just structured like this where a, we have all these flashbacks. B, the scene is being done in ASL. Like it, it's just like wow, it's all coming together in such a beautiful way. But uh, unfortunately, I agree that overall the show is kind of a, a complete mess. And I don't know if you noticed, Patrick, but some of the episodes have six writers for for some very basic material. So what yeah. I feel like is what happened is, as you said, it's been edited to shreds. They've gone back. They've retooled it over and over again. Um, and at the end of the day, yeah, you, you don't really even understand what Maya's powers are. Uh, it ends really, really abruptly, you know, and, um, maybe we're going to see Maya in a future MCU thing. I hope we do, but, well, I think uh, they said there was a, some reporting that came out of the, the Hollywood reporter that, uh, there had been a notable bump in rewatching Daredevil, Punisher, yeah. um, a lot of the street level Marvel stuff in the wake of, of Echo. Um, and there was a note in there that. Marvel was currently trying to figure out what to do with with Echo going forward. If you yeah. a lot of the casting reports for the next Daredevil season, that's quickly becoming a show stuffed with a lot of returning characters from yeah. from, from the, the Netflix run. So, um, and also I think it'd be a betrayal of where the character ends for her to run back to New York. Um, so, I, frankly, weirdly, like for like I maybe we don't get a She Hulk, but like. 
I would love if they found a way to do a second season of Echo where you could kind of get a redo of what just happened here and just keep her out mm-hmm. here. I would I would love if she could kind of carve out her own little community. I think there's plenty more to explore there with the the character, and so I, that's my hope is that they they manage to find a way to justify doing a second season of it because you know certainly uh, relative to She Hulk. The show doesn't look that expensive, um, and it seems like the kind of show where you could structure a plot and an arc that kept pre- kept itself pretty pretty contained. So, yeah, if the character's so interesting that I I desperately hope I'm like with you, I hope they find a way to keep her around because uh, she's just very novel and interesting, and 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 even representation representation aside, like the possibilities just introduces creatively. Like when they were uh, the scene where they were kidnapped at the uh, at the roller rink. And we're using uh, like signaling to one another to communicate because they knew that the other people couldn't. I was like, that's just, it allows you to do something that you can't do with all these other traditional characters. And I was like, that's, that's really fucking neat. And there is probably a lot more that you could do um, with a character and a group of characters that can communicate that way. I agree. And also the way the show uses sound is interesting. For instance, in the finale episode, uh, there is a scene when all the sound cuts out and you're just experiencing yeah. it as Echo would experience it. And that was like, oh, wow. I think the show in general, when it comes to uh, the deaf experience, has been like pretty thoughtful. You know, again, I'm not a member of the community, so like I don't know. But um, it's every every time you hear sound or the way sound is deployed feels very deliberate. and um, And the finale was no exception. And so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that the show does um so we'll see they there it was also reported that daredevil born again has restarted production after a lengthy hiatus because of the strikes so who knows what's going to happen there uh maybe the uh, new daredevil is going to see uh murdoch visit uh, uh tamaha you know oklahoma right is that where mm-hmm. it is I think so, so yes. uh, perhaps anyway that is echo season 1 episodes 3 through 5 those are our thoughts on that show Let's get to True Detective Night Country Part 2. This case. No answers. Should send this thing back to Anchorage. Hey, Chief. What's this? I've seen that before. This tattoo was on Annie's body. So what? It's the same case. No one stops to draw on their own forehead while they're freezing to death. So maybe the killer was out there on the ice with him. Huh? A killer. All right, Patrick Klepek, let's talk about part two of True Detective Night Country. Uh, obviously, we're we're basically committed to covering this show, so I think we both think it's worth watching. Uh, I guess I'm going to start by asking you... Uh, What stuck out to you about this episode? And let me read the plot summary. As Danvers and Pryor learn more about Salal and find an unlikely location for the physical evidence, Captain Connolly threatens to move the case to Anchorage. Later, Navarro and Danvers find a connection between one of the Salal men and Annie. Uh, End quote. Annie, of course, being the uh, activist that was killed earlier. Uh, But there is now a connection. Uh, I think Annie's... Uh, boyfriend, right, or lover was one mm-hmm. of the scientists that disappeared and also had this like strange tattoo on his chest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is definitely a connection between the cases now. Uh, but yeah, Patrick Klepek, what stuck out to you about True Detective Night Country Part Two? Uh, 
uh, you know, once again, it has a lot of really just compelling imagery. Obviously, if I think it's, it might have been maybe not impossible, but I, even if you aren't watching the show, you've probably seen the term copsicle like floating around uh this week and, Cor- corpsicle and I think corpsicle actually, corpsicle yeah. correct Cor- corpsicle well there are a lot of cops and you know i suppose they might be cold so then you know a copsicle could also yeah. exist you're, you're referring you're world. referring to the fact that at the end of last episode they found a bunch of a scientist frozen into a block mm-hmm. of ice that they then cut out and dragged to the town and had it defrosted at the local town ice rink incredible uh, like and it's just... an incredible it's an incredible piece of like set design or you know i don't know what it's a a prop a set i don't know what the technical term is but the design of it is horrifying it looks fairly convincing it's unlike anything you've seen on television before it's just like the weirdest bizarre most macabre thing so yeah (laughs) amazing right i would have loved to have been in the room where that was pitched and then like how are we going to build this uh yeah but I, yeah, I think it's a, a solid episode. Um, I'm I'm glad that sort of by the conclude like the conclusion of it, we are getting some interesting intersections of characters, things that I was a little worried might get dragged out a little further into the season because I'd rather certain characters just start kind of overlapping uh, more more quickly than than not. I will say I'm I'm a little worried every time the spiral shows up. Um, I'm, I believe that, um, Lopez has described this show as a, uh, uh, a dark mirror image of the first season. Um, Mm -hmm. I do have a little bit of worry of how far that's going to be taken in terms of reference, like how much of this is a kind of, uh, fan sequel, to the first one to make good on certain things that did or didn't occur um, in, in the first season of true detective. I don't know. We'll have, you know, four more episodes uh, to find that out, but I am like low, low key worried mostly because they're beginning to uh, invoke a bunch of things in regards to supernatural esque elements that are <laughs> increasingly feel like they may not be supernatural esque and just supernatural and the moment you leave the firm grounding of the cold ground in uh, in Alaska, I I be you start to you've got to land that plane, um, and I'm I'm hoping the show is going to be able to do that. I'm all the way along for the ride. I think the characters are compelling enough that I'm willing to forgive some messiness in terms of like explanation and things like that. And it's too early to prejudge that. But I will say it's like, okay, the show is asking me to leap because the show is also going to leap. And I am just profoundly curious to see where it chooses to take those questions and turn those into answers as we move forward. But love the area, love the environment, love the characters. And I think there's enough advancement of the mystery in this episode to make me deeply interested in what happens next. Well, speaking of season one, there was a theory that cropped up on the internet uh, that Travis might be related to Rusty Cole from the first season of the show. That theory is basically confirmed uh, this episode when uh, the character of Travis is given a last name of Cole. In season one, Rusty Cole says that uh, his father, Travis, moved his family to Alaska when he was a child and that he had, quote, some pretty fucking strange ideas, end quote. Um, And so this seems to be a confirmation that uh, the woman that 
I think it's Rose was with, right? Uh, was Travis and, and who apparently got cancer and walked out into the elements and succumbed to the cold rather than be taken by his own diseases. So uh, anyway, an interesting tie-in to the first mm-hmm. season of the show. A couple things I want to point out about this episode. First of all, in the first scene of the episode, you know, all the corpsicle stuff is very funny. They like rip someone's arm off by accident, which is never discussed again. I would think that would be like a if that happened in real life, that would be like a big deal that they like tampered with the crime scene that way. But then somebody. uh, One of the scientists, Lund, starts screaming Uh, like he seems to be alive in that. That was, you know. Uh, Patrick, you mentioned some big moment at the beginning of the next episode, and uh, to me, that was it. He starts yeah. screaming. We later find out that he is in a uh, induced coma, about to have surgery to amputate a leg. Now, I don't know about you, Patrick Klepek, mm. uh, but if it was me discovering this guy, Doctor Lund, was still alive, uh, I would be just waiting by Lund's like <laughs> hospital room the whole fucking time. Like that's that would be the rest of my week. Would just be waiting by Lund's thing to and the the show brushes past it so quickly i thought oh did i like mishear that like is that guy actually alive or was that a a dream sequence or something but no i think i think lund is still potentially alive at the end of the episode uh you know navarro starts counting the dead people and she's like wait there's a guy that's still alive and i'm like wasn't there another guy that's still alive that is in a coma like what's i didn't that was confusing to me but i'm pretty sure at the end of the episode, she's saying that there is a character that is still alive. I think it's, I want to say it's Chris, right? Um, and and then separately, Lund is still alive. Uh, so there's potentially two characters um, that are still alive. So uh, anyway, that was weird. Uh, Clark, I think, is the character's name. Clark. I think that's uh, right. Yeah. So uh, Raymond Clark. So anyway. That, that was just a weird moment that I wanted to mention. The other thing that I wanted to call out is I really admire how this show is making Jodie Foster into just a raging asshole. Like, oh, I love this uh, part of the show. Jodie Foster, by the way, a an actor who I have a great deal of affection for. Like, in most things, she plays a very sympathetic character, right? Like, in most of the things I have seen her in in my life, Jodie Foster is a is the person you want to root for, is the one you relate to the most, maybe the audience surrogate. In this show, she is a raging asshole. Like, everyone fucking hates this person. And as far as you can tell, they are right to hate her. Like, <laughs> she has done terrible things. She has slept with many people, including, you know, the ex-husband of uh, the person that owns the role, the, the ice rink, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this teacher whose class she just barges into. It's just like... I, which I don't think, I think that's a different guy than the ex-husband person, you know? So, oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's just like, wow. And uh, and she, she she seems to be stuck in this downward spiral where she can't, like, extricate herself from this descent of her character. And uh, it's fascinating to watch, and it's also kind of a huge, huge bummer. Patrick Klepek, what, what part of this character resonates with you? Well, the, I, frankly, it's exactly as as you've put it. It's It's the commitment to making her at least at this stage in the game, right? Like I suspect there are, yeah. you know, like, you know, layers to this character that will, that will get access to as the show goes on, but a real commitment to just reinforcing over and over how deeply unlikable he is. Cause it would be very easy because of the small town. Like, Oh, it's just, Oh, it's just her direct family. Like, Oh, it's just this person. It's like at every step yeah. at every turn, 
at every moment where she could choose, even in, in a moment where like she shows up and is around a child and is sort of warm with the with the child for a moment, immediately when confronted about a decision she'd made, just chooses to be the the most obnoxious, meanest person possible, culminating in a sequence where she's yelling like at a grandmother in like the horribly offensive, like deeply yeah. upsetting ways, uh, like where. I was not even expecting the character to like the, the character presents as grumpy, disagreeable. Yeah. I think that's kind of where you end up with it by the, by the end of the first episode and episode two just really commits to like, no, like, yes. Would everyone up here probably be kind of grumpy and kind of miserable, especially during the periods where there's no sun. Sure. That's going to take a toll on the human body and the human psyche. And people are going to be in a, in a bad place potentially. But she chooses to go the extra mile. Like she's right. just a genuinely miserable person that then deploys that misery as a weapon on yeah. other people. Um, and, and you know she's not tortured about it either. Like a lot of people in these kinds of shows, they're uh, they're assholes, but they you know they have this feeling of oh, like I feel bad on this way. She doesn't seem to experience much remorse, at no. least at this stage. Maybe that's going to change over time. You know. Uh, anyway, yeah. So. Really amazing depiction of this character by Jodie Foster, and uh, somehow she has won even more of my heart uh, <laughs> after after playing one of the worst, least likable characters ever uh, that she's ever played. Couple of other things to mention: uh, there is a kind of creepy ass shit in this episode. Patrick Klepek. Uh they, they go to this trailer that has a freaking doll and whatever. Like it's this weird, creepy doll with all this stuff hanging, very Carcosa esque. You know, from season one, but you mm-hmm. gotta have. I, I was impressed that we got not only one but two major creepy elements this episode: the corpsicle and this trailer that looks like you know it was they did ritualistic murders in it. Before, well, then so. also there's the the brief uh, cell phone footage um, where we see mm, someone yeah. d- doing a classic horror pose of you know, like looking well, that away. Was from, we saw that in the first episode. That we saw the cell phone version of something that we saw in the first episode. Gotcha, but, gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, like multiple sequences that are leaning into uh, the scares in a way that I'm 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 very much enjoying. Uh, and then a couple of other hints, you know, uh, it, it, we see Danvers and and Navarro kind of re-team up. The, they, they, you know, uh, Danvers says to Navarro, hey, uh, you're, you're back on the case. Like, we're working together and we're going to solve this and then we're done. A um, couple of interesting things there. They refer to this thing called the Wheeler thing. Uh, we don't know what that's going to be, but I assume that will be explained. Also, Danvers seems to know the details of Navarro's apartment really well. Like, yeah. Where know, do the cans, go? where are the cans? Where'd you move the cans or, you know, whatever. And it's like, uh, I think there's an open question about what the nature of their relationship really was back in the day. So I think we'll find out more about that. Uh, but yeah, the only thing, the only other thing I want to mention is there's, I think there's like this big, que- but we also see Danvers do like actual detective work. They lay out all the pictures, very high quality printer. They seem to have up there in, in, in NS Alaska. And, you know, like she's walking through, you know, what are the questions you should be asking and talking through? I think prior is the kid's name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there's this big question of like, how is she going to let this kid down in this show? Right. Or is she going to, right. Uh, and so I think that's one of the driving questions of the show for me is, uh, is will she actually redeem herself or is this going to be about her maybe recognizing that she can't be redeemed and, uh, uh, you know, 
but basically that kid seems like a good, he seems like a good kid, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. want anything bad to happen to him, you know? So that's kind of where I'm at about it. Uh, anyway, those, those are my thoughts on it. Um, P- Peter Pryor, by the way, is the, the young actor's name played by Finn Bennett. Um, his father is John Hawks who plays Captain Hank Pryor. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one thing uh, I'll point out, and there's actually a, a through line uh, between Echo and True Detective here is love the normalizing of older people having sex. Let's talk about it. Let's show it on screen. I mean, I, I, I genuinely like there is one of the uh, my favorite bits uh, throughout Echo that I meant to mention before, but was reminded in this conversation was like there are several extended scenes of flirting in Echo that were between you know people mm-hmm. that we would you know consider the age of like a you know a grandmother or grand uh, grandfather people in their 60s and 70s and like i thought it was very like charming and cute and like not something you see depicted as something other than being like oh that's kind of creepy that like old do like old people want to have se- you know it's often or like an for- object of derision typically right, right? It's, yeah. it's it's weird or it's a joke that's like laughed at by you know younger audiences in, in the cast of the show or the uh the movie and I I thought that was interesting and noteworthy. Obviously, like Jodie Foster still looks wonderful for her age. Um, uh, um, but I, I thought there were multiple wonderful times. period. I'm gonna put wonderful, that out there. Yeah, wonderful yeah. period. Uh, but uh, but usually you'd have a show shy away from that because of her age, right? And I I, I thought there were there were multiple instances in this episode alone where there were depictions, discussions of folks of certain types of, of certain age groups that we don't normally have discussions and encouraging of like a very normal thing that those people are probably doing. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a, thought an interesting and noteworthy part of the episode. I, I am just, uh, you know, after watching true detective night country episodes one and two, I'm just looking for slash hoping for a regular sex scene between two consenting adults where there's no <laughs> weird ass power dynamic between them. It's just loving. It's not people. titillating, right? It's, like it is not. Yeah. Like it is not well, the way True Detective season one is. Since she's like, we're going to put Alexandria Daddario on the map by showing you her tits, and it's like that was like egregious. Like, uh, like the fact but, that that was a cultural moment was disgusting. But I think I'm just saying, uh, like the the True Detective sex scenes have been messed up in some way or another. You know, like uh, there's some weird power dynamic going on in every one of these things, and I'm just like. You know, just just give me some of the vanilla stuff that like isn't gonna upset me and haunt my dreams. That would be <laughs> just two I people, love, just two people normally who love each other, having a normal, missionary yeah. sex, yep, just the most boring stuff about, uh, imaginable. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Just something where so someone is not grossly uncomfortable uh, during the entirety of the sex. Well, we, that, we that would be great. It's not depicted, but uh, obviously, you know, we have two uh, you know queer characters like meeting, like meeting off, sneaking off some some young love mm. uh, that is happening, and so um, you know, whatever they got up to is obviously not Hopefully shown. In their the show. relationship will not be terrible, and uh, that's that's. <laughs> I have a sense it's going for. to be ruined, though. Like there is a, <laughs> I mean, there is a scene where they kind of catch each other's eye um, uh, at the ice rink, and. Like, is it going to shock you if Danvers is like deeply homophobic? <laughs> like, like that's not going to shock me with that character mm, uh, mm. at all. I hope it's not the case, but would, wouldn't um, wouldn't catch Mary surprise if she looked down on that relationship for for one reason or another. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anything else about uh, episode two of Night Country, Patrick Lepic? No, looking forward to it. I I feel. Like this episode ends in a really interesting place where the mystery is like really kicked off. Like it's part of, you know, uh, 
Echo was five episodes. Uh, Night Country is six episodes. There's uh, something kind of exciting of a show that is pretty encapsulated yeah. and not bloated. Um, maybe you get to the end and wish, kind of like Echo, that either it spent its time differently or had more time to, to spend that time. But uh, it, it 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 has it gives the show a real sense of momentum. It's like, oh man, like episode three is going to be firmly halfway into the show like stuff is going to keep happening. And so maybe that'll help the show save itself from some of my worries about elongating questions of the supernatural and what's happening just because the running time uh, is, is as short as it is. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on true detective night country uh, part two. Patrick Klepek, you want to let people know they can find more of your work on the internet this week. You can uh, catch me talking about video games, sports, home remodeling projects, buying cars, that encapsulates way too much for one website, but that's over at remapradio.com. And then my uh, newsletter about parenting and gaming is over at crossplay.news. All right. And uh, of course, podcast.decodingtv.com is where you can find more episodes of this show and support this podcast by becoming a paid member at decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast uh, or of the shows that we talk about. A reminder, next week, the homework. What you got to watch for next week? The first couple episodes of Expats on Prime Video. First couple of episodes of Masters of the Air on Apple TV+. And, of course, the third episode of uh, True Detective Night Country. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Decoding TV. We'll see you later. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.